bonjour, and welcome to Rianne's Nature Scope. I'm the host, Rianne, and today's episode is about an event that happened long ago during World War II that people still to this day don't know if it was an enemy attack or to gain political popularity. The area was first named Punta San Esteban by Spanish explorer Juan José Pérez Hernández when he explored the area in 1774. Four years later, James Cook renamed it Breakers Point in 1778 on one of his expeditions. The west coast of Vancouver Island was only lit by two lighthouses in the 19th century, despite heavy marine traffic. The tragic wreck of the Valencia in 1906 near Pancetta Point speared the Canadian government to provide more aids to navigation for the region. And in 1907, approval for a light station at Esteban Point was given. The lighthouse at Esteban Point was designed by William P. Anderson and later on built in 1909. With no safe landing at Esteban Point, all supplies were offloaded five miles away at the First Nation village of Hesquiat. It took a while for the workmen to create a trail built for their tramway of supplies. In November 1908, the combination of high tide and wind carried away 25 yards of the trail and made another 200 yards useless. They eventually resorted to carrying their supplies on their backs and in wheelbarrows. By 1908, the lighthouse had installed a fog alarm and light. The light produced three white flashes every 10 seconds. In 1942, during World War II, Esteban Point Lighthouse was fired upon by the Japanese submarine I-26, making that attack the first enemy attack on Canadian land since the Fronian raids of 1866 and 1871. The attack on the lighthouse was around the same time as the Japanese submarine I-25 made an attack on Fort Stevens. The I-26 fired 25 to 30 rounds of 5.5-inch shells at Esteban Point Lighthouse, but failed to hit its target, leaving the lighthouse undamaged. Five Royal Canadian Navy patrol vessels and an RCAF submarine Stranraer flying boat were sent to search for the submarine, but could not find the I-26, which fled north and then returned to Japan. One of the submarine's 5.5-inch shells was recovered by a naval shore patrol after the attack, while additional fragments were found in 1973. One of the fragments was presented to the Maritime Museum of British Columbia. The lighthouse light was dismantled in the 1980s and then donated to a regional museum in 2004. In a 1995 episode of the CBC television news magazine program, The Fifth Estate reported contradicting eyewitness description of the attack vessel being an Allied surface vessel with intent of increasing domestic support for the Prime Minister Mackenzie King and that the attack was a false flag. How might we use stories to understand the cause and consequences of World War II? I have been pondering this question lately, as I have done research on both World War II and the events of Estevan Point. There are many different answers to this question. No one knows for sure if the attack on the lighthouse was by an Allied surface vessel or a Japanese submarine. 
The reason many believe it was an Allied surface vessel was because during World War II, many Canadians didn't believe in what was going on in Europe. Many didn't have the knowledge due to it not being right in their backyards. This attack could have been for those people to have a realization that this war was actually happening. This perspective on the attack relates to the consequences of World War II ending. The war ended due to a method of attack called strategical bombing. This strategy was to bomb the enemy's civilians until they surrendered, leading to Germany's surrender May 7, 1945. Another possible cause to the attack at Estevan Point was a Japanese submarine. There are many reasons as to why a Japanese submarine would have attacked Estevan Point. It could be related to the US being Japan's source of oil during World War II and attacking California and Oregon due to the US stopping the trade. Or it could be related to the German strategy of cutting off Britain's ally sources. If you successfully take down a lighthouse, Ships won't be able to navigate during the dark or the fog, and could end up crashing. We might never know what caused this attack, but it's always interesting to think about. Now for my interview with Maureen Schmidt, one of the lightkeepers at Esteban Point Lighthouse. My name is Maureen, and uh, I live out at uh, Esteban Point uh, Light Station, and I work for the Canadian Coast Guard as a lightkeeper. It's just me out here and one other keeper, and I have two cats. What are your main, like, what are the main things you do as a lightkeeper? Uh, well, our main responsibility is to watch the weather and report uh, the weather um, to the uh, uh, Prince Rupert uh, Coast Guard radio. Um, we report it uh, seven times a day, every three hours, starting at 3.30 in the morning, and the last one being at 9.30 at night. So that's our, our big responsibility, and then the rest is just, you know, keeping an eye on uh, what's going on around our station, uh, watching the water, and maintaining the property. So we do a lot of um, lawn care. In, in the summertime and in the winter and the spring, we, we do power washing and painting and stuff like that to spruce it up after the winter starts. What information do you know about the attack on the lighthouse during World War II? Uh, well, that, at that time, the lightkeeper that was here, his name was uh, Robert Lally, and that happened on June 20th, 1942. And uh, they had seen a submarine out on the water about two miles away, offshore from the station, and uh, shells landed on the shore. Um, they had been fired uh, towards the station, but they landed on the shore, um, didn't hit anything. And right away, uh, Mr. Lolly ran up to the top of the light tower and turned out the light so that the submarine wouldn't be able to see um, their target and the rest of the shells uh, went over the station and, and missed the station. And uh, nobody was killed or hurt, and uh, no damage was done to any of the buildings at all. But uh, people had found um, empty shells on the coast. I think the last one was found in the early 2000s, unexploded, and there's still a chance of, of finding them. 
uh, along the coastline around here to this day. I don't think um, all of them have been found, although they've been looked for. They haven't been found because it's a very wild rainforest here, and it's hard to to find them with all the brush and, and debris that comes up from the sea. How would you react if you were in that sort of situation? Um, I'd do the same thing. I, I, I'd, uh, well, first of all, we have a, now we have better radio communication with the, uh, the Coast Guard um, stations um, in both Victoria and in uh, Prince Rupert. So I'd radio them at the same time I was, I'd run down and turn off the power, the main the main generators to the station and turn off all the lights and and then I'd probably head up the trail into the woods so that I was nowhere near the station and try to make it to up to the Hesquiet village that's about five miles up the coast and, and just pray for luck <laughs> and I'd take my cats yeah I'd put them in the, in the backpack I have for them <laughs> like they've got a special backpack just in case I think the attack on S1 Point shows us that many people see or hear things in a different perspective. Thank you for listening to this episode of Rian's Nature Scope, and a special thanks to Maureen for being available to do an interview. My podcast is now available on Google Podcasts, Spotify, Breaker, Pocket Casts, and Radio Public. Make sure to stay tuned for more episodes to come.